So if you have your Bibles with you, open them to the Gospel of Luke. We are in chapter 3 today. We're moving forward. It's awesome. Started at the beginning of December, and we're finally in the third chapter. And we're going to be reading... I'm going to begin by reading the first six verses. We're going to go to verse 20 today in total, but I'm going to open with just the first six verses. If you need a Bible, by the way, we have some up front here, and I believe we also had some handout sheets for people who want to take notes, and that'd be great if you want to do that as well. So let me uh, read the first six verses, and then I'm going to pray one more time, and then we will dive in. Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Euturia and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, you should try pronouncing these things, okay? Lysanias is tetrarch of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Pray with me, would you? Uh, Father, we thank you for this story that Luke recorded, the story of the coming forth of John the Baptist, the forerunner. Father, I just pray today that as we look at this word that you would open our minds and our hearts again, as I said before, prayed before, that we, Father, we need to hear from you today. Holy Spirit, teach us. Um, Draw us closer to yourself um, in this passage today so that we can see why it was so important to record this, who John the Baptist really was, and what he teaches us. And I pray these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. So as we begin chapter 3, one commentary that I was reading I love uh, by a man from England that I've had for a long time. It's called The Gospel According to Luke uh, by Dr. David Gooding. He, and others as well, say that, you know, when we get to chapter 3, we're going into a major shift in the gospel, in this particular recording by Luke. It's true. It is a major shift. Um, I have to preface a little bit by, by saying today, this, this gets a little heavy today. Uh, it's definitely heavier than what we've been in before. There may be some light moments and things we can see in the last few weeks which were interesting, especially the birth of a baby in a manger uh, at Christmas, which is awesome, baby Jesus. It's incredible. But this is a major shift. We now have fast-forwarded 30 years in the life of John the Baptist and in Jesus and we've gone from there, the, the life story, the birth story, the narrative of when they were young and Jesus was 12 in the temple as we saw last week, to now when they're 30 years of age, both of them. Today we focus on John when he is 30 years of age and they are beginning their ministry years. Luke promised in the first four verses that he was going to write an orderly account for his good friend Theophilus, right? So that he would have certainty about what he believed about Jesus. And that's exactly what we see here in the very beginning of what I've read. Luke, as we know, is this historian. He's a documentarian. He's a physician. He's a scientist. And he's laying it all out. What he's done here in the beginning, in the first three verses, is he he has sandwiched, really, the intersection of human secular history and the divine. 
It's when God literally breaks into our world, and at the same time, He has listed governors and people, and you can read secular history books, and those people were real. And so Luke is positioning it contextually in history so that we understand that these stories are true and that they actually happened. So after last week's message, we know a little bit about the early life of Jesus. We learned that, you know, at least by 12 years of age, we learned a little bit more about Him when He was 12. gives us some insight into who He knew Himself to be and why He had come. That was pretty clear. And so we, we, we look today at, uh, you know, John the Baptist, and, and the question is, well, what do we know? <laughs> what do we know about John the Baptist before he shows up today at 30 years of age, this voice crying in the wilderness? Well, we know from Luke's uh, first chapter of, the, of his gospel that his, uh, the story about his father, Zechariah, receiving this vision from the angel Gabriel, right? And, and the angel Gabriel comes to him and tells him that despite the fact that his wife Elizabeth has been barren and they're both really old, right? Like they're in their 80s or 90s, and, and they're going to have a child. Remember that? And Zachariah's like, excuse me? Like, do you know how old my wife is? I mean, he actually kind of says that. And, and, and he doesn't believe Gabriel. And so Gabriel, God, strikes him deaf and dumb because of his unbelief. And he is that way for nine whole months during Elizabeth's pregnancy. She does conceive, and for nine whole months, he is deaf and dumb. Then when John is born, and he's being asked by the people who've come to say, congratulations, you have a baby boy. You're going to name him Zechariah, right? And, and, and he's going, no, 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 no. He actually starts speaking again. His tongue comes back to him, and he's able to speak, and he goes, no, uh, the angel told me where to call him John. And then in Luke chapter 1, verses six, uh, 76 to 79, we read this. He, he breaks out in a prophetic prayer, a song, and we read these words. And he's, you can imagine just holding his son, you know, that he's been wanting all of his life, and he's holding him in his arms, and he says this, and you, child, and you, child, John, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. So we know from this that Zechariah is telling him, now he's a baby, right? He doesn't know, what, he's not understanding this, but we know that John the Baptist has been born into a very special situation and circumstance. And so we know something about him from this. And then Luke ends in uh, the first chapter in verse 80 with these words. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Now, if you remember from last week, in chapter 2, we saw that in verse 40, the book ends again, in verse 40 and verse 52, we saw the same words virtually about Jesus, Right? In verse 40, it was, and the child grew, right, from the eighth day when he was circumcised until he was 12, and so he's a child. And then we saw at the end of the narrative about Jesus in the temple at 12 years of age, and Jesus continued to grow. And we will see more about what he turns into at 30 years of age next week. So I want you to imagine a game for me for just a moment. We have to kind of imagine here. Um, what was... John the Baptist's life like as a child, really, from zero to 30, what would that have been like? Now, the Scripture doesn't teach us, 
anything. But we know what his father had prophesied about him, what Gabriel had given to him, and what his father had said he'd come to do and who he was. So come on, you got to imagine, just like we did last week, that as he's growing up, his mother, Elizabeth, and his dad, Zachariah, must have been telling him, you know, like, this is what the angel Gabriel said about you, and that you've got a very special mission in your life, and it's, it, your life has been set apart. Um, we also read back in Luke chapter 1, I believe, that he's not to have as part of this song again, or what Gabriel tells him, no strong drink, no wine, no beer, no alcohol. In other words, for his whole life, he was going to have to take on a Nazarite vow, so his his life is fully committed, and I got to believe, you've got to believe, come on, that when he's growing up, his parents are reminding him, no beer, no wine, right? You, no, that you have a special calling on your life. Further, he would have been told this, that his cousin Jesus was number one. He would have been told that all of his life. Now, can you imagine? It would be bad if it was a brother, but you got a cousin, and, and he's number one. He, he's the one who will grow up and become the Messiah, the Savior of the world. John would have known this all of his life. And so, growing up, can you just imagine this? John would have recognized that he would be second for his whole life. That's our title for our message today. I have no points. I will make points, I hope. But the one point, I am second. I am second. John's life teaches us that. It's a remarkable thing. Growing up all of your life, imagine being told that you're very special, but you're always going to be second in life. Never first. You're never going to be that guy, that woman, that person. All your life you're being told that. I think, uh, come on, let's be honest, the problem with most of us when we were younger, most young men and women in our world today, especially in our wealthy and relative terms, North American culture and world, the problem is that most of us have been taught that either directly or by inference that we're very special. <laughs> we're so special, right? We, we, we want our children to think highly of themselves. They're special. They're loved. We're loved. That's who we are. Yes, that's true. The problem is we have been taught to see ourselves, quite frankly, as first and to seek to be first, rarely second. Anyone been taught by their parents that you're second? You need to be second? I never was. You need to be the best hockey player on the team, Glenn. You need to be the best student in the class, the best drummer, whatever. You know, it's why some of us end up at 40 driven and on antidepressants, right? Like, it's tough. But that's what we're taught. I want to suggest to you today that you and I should love the idea of knowing we are second. We should, but so few of us do. And that's one of the great lessons that we're going to learn today from John the Baptist. He knew he was second, even to his cousin. And for 30 years, he knew that he was second to Jesus in particular, this person. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. He saw his identity in ways that most of us fail to see even in our Christian walk in life. We fail to see it the way he does. So why do I say that? Well, because, look, John the Baptist, I would suggest, saw it this way. He saw it this way. There is no one, no person, no mother, nor father, no husband or wife, no child, no mentor, <laughs> right? No famous or rich person, 
No one who could become second, he could become second to who compares with Jesus. Nobody that you could become second to who could compare with Jesus Christ. He had to know that to go through what he did for 30 years and then to show up and know that he was putting his life on the line for what he was going to do and we're going to read about what he does today. He would have had to know that. So Luke opens this stage in the life of John the Baptist by placing him into historical context among the political and religious rulers of the times. He then quotes Isaiah 40 and his great prophecy from centuries ago about the forerunner to the Messiah, and this is where we see the great clash, really, between the human and the divine. I'll put these words back on screen that I read just a minute ago where it says this, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, look at this, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Man, we could preach a whole sermon or just go deeply just on that one thing. He's out there. He's this voice crying, going, guys, you need to hear this message, and nobody wants to come and hear it. He's this voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make His path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of our God. What a mission. What a mission that John has been giving. So, let's look at what John the Baptist, Baptist was actually called to do. Luke does again today like he did last week. He bookends the story um, with two verses that actually in the verses tell us what John the Baptist came to do. They tell us. In verse 3, it says this. I'll put it back on screen. And he went into, yes, there it is, into all the region around the Jordan. Here it is. Here's his purpose. Here's what he came to do, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then secondly, in verse 18, so with many exhortations, he preached good news to the people. (laughs) Now, so we learn that John is what? What do we learn from these verses that John is? Anybody? I know we're, we're, you know, mostly Baptists and it's rare that people like to speak out, but what, what do we learn from these verses that John is? He's which? He's a preacher, right? He's a preacher. That's the first thing that we realize about him is that he is a preacher. He's come to preach. What a message that he has to preach. We see here that he's come to preach, to proclaim. And and what is he preaching? Well, again, the verse tells us right there, he's preaching good news. He's preaching good news, which we know is the gospel, which is good news. Now, this is where we need to take one of the two excursuses easy for me to say. Today, John wasn't the first one baptizing folks in that day. He wasn't the first one to be doing this. There were many, many rabbis and spiritualists, in other words, non-Jewish spiritualists believing in all kinds of gods and deities, baptizing people and also with a baptism of repentance. I mean, everybody in that day, just like today, knows that we're messed up. We're not perfect. We, we make mistakes and we have to say sorry. I mean, anybody? Like, okay, I'm alone. This t-shirt is really, 
One of the best ways I can describe the, the, the baptism of repentance that happened in that day by the rabbis and, and, and by spiritualists would be like what I was familiar with, with when I was in the Catholic Church. I was raised Catholic and came to faith in Christ when I was 23 years of age. But one of the Catholic practices is something called confession, right? And, and it's, it's, it's interesting. Uh, and so you go to the, the, the church, you know, once a week, once a month, once a year if you're... <laughs> Not a good Catholic, but you go, and, and you go into this little booth, and the priest is in there, and you go in, and it's dark, and he opens the thing, and you know, you, 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 then you confess to him your sins. And we were like good Catholics, you keep lists, right? Even for a week, you've got to keep a list, right? Because you've got to make sure you get them all out there, right? And so then you, you confess your sins to the priest, and he then gives you your penance, right? Which is, you know, like ten Hail Marys, ten Our Fathers, and the real penance wasn't so much the... Ten Hail Marys and Ten Hour Fathers that you had to, had to give, it was going up and kneeling on the marble altar. And, uh, you know, I, I got to be honest with you, I spent a lot of time in the confessional <laughs> and a lot of time on the altar <laughs> doing my penance. But here's the idea. Once you did that, once you went through this process, the idea, what we understood anyway, was you're good, clean slate, white as snow. Really? Really? There's no sense, actually, I didn't have any sense that I really did need to repent, which literally means a change of mind, but also it meant stop sinning. <laughs> so so th this is kind of what this was like in that day. There, there were a lot of baptisms going on, and people were like, well, you know, I, I've built up, you know, like a whole list of bad things, so, you know, so-and-so's out there doing baptisms. I think I better go now and, and show that I'm truly sorry for what I've done. And you go out and you, you, you know, you, you do your baptism of repentance, and you're good. Clean slate. Start all over again. That was kind of the idea that people had in that day. This is what most Jews and nons thought the run-of-the-mill baptisms of repentance going on back then were about. Now, faithful Jews, very faithful Jews, knew that there was more to it. Most faithful Jews knew that when, when they went to this baptism of repentance, it really wasn't for forgiveness of sins, it was atoning for sins, and that there was going to be coming a day when a true baptism and forgiveness would take place. But not in those days. They didn't see that. So John was proclaiming something brand new, something that not even his baptism could provide, and he makes that point to us today. He was simply getting people ready for the one who could offer forgiveness for their and our sins once and for all. And hear this, to live a life free from sin. That's the whole point of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire. Not that we will ever be perfect and totally without sin, but it should be put to death in our mortal bodies in our lifetime. And that's what this repentance, this true and full repentance is supposed to be all about. But it's also noted, has to be noted, that they would have known this in that day, and John certainly knew this, we were going to need some serious help. This is not the kind of repentance that we can do on our own. And that's why we hear him saying this as the crowd comes forward. Now, imagine this. John's out there. You know, he's wearing a weird-looking fur coat, and he's eating locusts and honey. He's an interesting guy. We find that out from other passages. But he then, these people start coming out. The crowds are coming out to him, and we read this. 
And he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, <laughs> right? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, you've got to understand, in those days, these words would have basically meant, you snakes, you slithering on your belly, snakes, serpents, who are trying to slither away from the fire in the bush to protect yourselves. Serious. So now let's make sure we see the picture here. This is the picture. It's very seeker sensitive, isn't it? <laughs> Welcome to church. God loves you. You know, you know, it's who He is. It's who you are. You're loved by God. That's a great song. I love it. It's true. All of it's true. Certainly not seeker sensitive. Secondly, and this does lead to our second excursus, this greeting isn't made, listen, it's not made to the uber-religious, right? It's not made to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the, the, the hypocrites. This is made to the crowds coming out to Him. He's speaking here to both religious and irreligious people, and this is something we often miss. Most people will hear a message like this and say, yeah, well, this is good. Go for it, preacher. You, you, you go after those religious types, those, you know, those, those hypocrites, you know, those people who outwardly profess to be so righteous and they try to show off with their big hats and their coats and all the rest of it and how much clink and clang goes into the offering jar and, they, you know, they, they try to show up. But we all know that inside they're just hypocrites. You go for it, preacher. You, you go and you preach to them, but not me because I'm not like them. This is who John is speaking to here. John is like, no, 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 no. Hear this. It's hard. You, we, are all serpents, snakes, when it comes to true repentance. We are. You all know this, or you should by now. Repentance means, as I've said already, it means a change of mind. It means a turning, but it means something that has to happen up here. It's, it's a change of mind toward, listen, your own self-righteousness that says you're not so bad that Jesus had to die on the cross for you. Maybe somebody else he had to go that far for, but for me, a few whippings, a few beatings, that, that would cover my sins, right? You need a change of mind about that, a total change of mind about that, because the truth of the Scripture is there's two things that I, I just quote for you that, that, that are just absolutely true. The Scripture tells us there's none righteous. No, not one. See, all of us, I, I've been just, just watching the news and various things. I won't mention any, you know, prime ministers or any people like that lately. But no, everybody in the world wants to be seen by our world as righteous, don't they? I've got the moral high ground. Look at me. I'm righteous. It's, it's bizarre. Now, yes, there are a lot of religious people that way, a lot of Christians that way. I get it. But everybody is righteous or seeking righteousness in their own way. Why is that? Because we need it. We need righteousness. Problem is, we don't have it. None of us have it. It's a gift of God and we need it from Him. The other is all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So listen, we're all in this together. <laughs> like all of us, there's nobody here that's better than anyone else when it comes to this message that John is bringing. None of us. 
He then goes on in the next few verses to say this, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Basically, he's saying to them, guys, okay, listen, here's the point about repentance you've got to get today. Okay, the idea of repentance is you really have had a change of mind and it's going to show. <laughs> you're going to stop doing all that stuff you've been doing. There's going to be a change in you because the change of mind has gone to a change of heart and you're no longer the same person. And then he, and he says, listen, don't any of you, don't any of you come along and tell me, well, we've got Father Abraham, right? That's what it says here, right? He, he's basically saying to them, it's because that's the other part of your excuse. You're saying, well, no, 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 wait a sec. I can understand those irreligious Greek, you know, Gentile pagans that they don't have righteousness through repentance of baptism that you can provide for. But me, I'm, I'm Jewish. I'm part of the clan. I'm part of the family. I've got the righteousness because it's been part the righteousness because it's imparted to me via my father Abraham. And he's saying, guys, don't don't even bother trying to give that argument to me. And then he says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Now, again, in our language today, in our English today, we read that and we're like, um, okay, what, what is what's going on here? Well, he they would have perfectly understood that. He would have they would have sensed that what John is saying to them, guys, your whole way of self-righteousness and way of living and, and making yourself acceptable before God, it's coming down. <laughs> that tree is coming down. That faith, that belief, it's done. It's over. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So John is clearly not so seeker-sensitive, is he? Right? He's not seeker-sensitive. Very bold, very direct, brutal, in fact, laying it on the line, leaving no room for misunderstanding whatsoever. Well, it's a good thing that Jesus is different, doesn't it? Wasn't it, wasn't it a good thing that when Jesus came, he was like, yeah, that was harsh. <laughs> that was pretty hard. And listen, I, I just want you to know about, you know, grace, mercy, the love of God. Like he did. He does want us to know about that. Actually, this is the reason why John is the forerunner. One of the reasons why he's the forerunner is because he's a perfect model of Jesus Christ. And Jesus follows directly in his footsteps and to a T. In Matthew, in his gospel, in chapter 12, verse 34, we read this, Jesus speaking, you brood of vipers. Excuse me? Where did I hear that before? How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Then in chapter 23, wow, chapter 23 of Matthew, this is not, you know, early morning devotions where you want to, you know, go out that day and go, life is so good, right? It's called the seven woes. Jesus just goes crazy for 33 verses, um, calling out the Pharisees and scribes, yes, mostly, but again, if you read it, you, you, you have to see that he's calling out anyone who's relying on their own acts and works of righteousness, for salvation, forget it, because it ends with these words, you serpents, Jesus speaking, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Not seeker sensitive, but come on, we, we, we do know that Jesus loves us. He so loved us that he came into this world to die for us. That's how much he loves us. But there's a consequence. There's something going on here that's incredibly serious. And every one of us in this room has to have come through this and understood this. These are the two things that mark the three-year ministry of Jesus that we're going to see. Two things mark 
the ministry of Jesus in the three and a half years that he is on this earth. Number one, the religious seek to have him crucified. Like they hear this, they know he's talking directly to them, calling them out in front of everyone, and they're like, that's it. We have to get this guy off the planet. We have to kill him. That's what they seek to do. Secondly, though, the irreligious crowd that comes out for the free food and the healings and the the good words and the good talk, you know, thousands upon thousands upon thousands come to hear from him. And as he goes closer and closer to Jerusalem and to the cross, that crowd is thinning out like you wouldn't believe. By the time that he is crucified on the cross, do you know how many, some of you do, are in the upper room waiting for him to rise from the dead? 120 people are left. Everyone else has left and run away. At the end of Passover week, right, that's what happens. After laying palm leaves on the streets on Monday and yelling out, thousands of them yelling out, Hosanna, Hosanna, and hail to the king. In five days, they, the irreligious crowd, are all with the religious Pharisees and scribes screaming, crucify him, crucify him. God wants us to see a particular picture here. And that picture is, come on, we're all the same when it comes to a repentance that isn't true. We're all the same when it comes to saying, I'm sorry for what I did. And then not really doing anything about it, not being changed. We're all the same. And so we need some help. And obviously, that's exactly what the crowd sees here, kind of. Look what they say in verses 10 to 12. And the crowd asked, what then shall we do? That's a good question, right? I mean, this is serious, John. Like, you're really, ooh. What then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? You know, again, any Jew or Greek reading this in that day would know that, I mean, tax collectors were the lowest of the low. They were Jews, mostly, who were taking bribes and taking money from even their own people. What should we do? And John the Baptist said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. (laughs) Wow. In other words, don't feed at the trough right? Just do the right thing. Wow. Soldiers asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Huh? (laughs) Okay. So here's the problem, right? They're asking, what shall we do? Sounds like they, they want to repent and they want to be really good people. And, and John is actually turning it around and he's saying, Guys, you should be doing what you've not been doing. (laughs) And and every time you've come out for a baptism of repentance in the past and you said you're sorry for having done the wrong thing here, you go back to doing the same thing you were doing before. You haven't repented. That seems to be his point. I mean, they basically ask the same question, if you think about it, Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, remember the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples, boom, and, and Peter preaches the most amazing gospel message of all time, and thousands of people are listening to him, and they say to him, Peter, what shall we do? But there's a difference. They don't just say, what shall we do? Okay, okay, you're asking for more. What do we now need to do in order to show that we are righteous and that we've repented? 
in Peter's day, they say, what do we need to do to be saved? In the case of John's baptism, they're still not getting it. It's like they're saying, okay, we get it now, but what do we, because we're maybe unique, special in our different categories, crowd, tax collector, soldier, maybe our circumstances are different. What do we do in order to receive this, right? But there's one other thing that we see just in these verses we've just read. Do you notice it? What does he, who does he sound like when he's talking about two tunics and, you know, do this right and do that right? Who, does he remind you of anybody? He's the forerunner, right? Does he not sound like Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount? <laughs> totally taking their self-righteous attitudes about murder and lust, right? adultery, and going, hmm, yeah, you don't get it, guys. It's not just taking the life of a person. It's hating your brother. In God's eyes, that's murder. It's exactly like Jesus. Luke continues, As the people were in expectation, he says, look at this. As the people were in expectation. Okay, so what this means is they're, okay, they're getting worked up. They're like, okay, whoa. Like, what does this mean? This guy is speaking with authority, not like our scribes. Again, sounds like somebody. They were in expectation. All were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. Listen to him. What a message. Never heard this one before when it came to a baptism of repentance. John answered them, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn. This is metaphorical, but very distinct. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So, As I said, the crowds now see and recognize his teachings as those of a wise man, just as they will Jesus. But they're not sure what's going on and who John really is. Is he the Messiah? He's sounding very wise. We've got to go back to verse 16 because it's the key. Let me put it on screen. John answered them all saying this. Look at this. I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, first, I want to ask you this question. Do you see how low John goes, knowing that he is second? I love this picture. He knows he's second, and, and what he's saying is, I, I, am, I need to go to his feet and then go lower. I'm not even worthy to get on my knees and untie his sandals. That's how low John goes, knowing that he is in second. But he also knew there was a superior baptism to his. And that's what he's here to prepare people for. And that's why we're reading it today, because he's preparing us to understand what that superior baptism is. The superiority of Jesus' baptism is apparent. Water baptism is external I mean, the act of baptism, by the way, for any of you who might want to come to baptism class, doesn't save you, right? It's just you're going to get wet on the outside. That's all that's going to happen. While baptism with the Spirit and fire is an internal baptism, one can be water baptized without being baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's what was happening in that day and vice versa. 
Water baptism can only wash the outside of a person. Baptism with the Spirit and fire cleanses the whole inside. Cleanses us. So let's keep that in mind as we conclude today. Let's keep that in mind. Luke moves to his conclusion of this passage with this. So with many other exhortations, exhortations, wow, he continued preaching good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, hmm, interesting, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. <laughs> so there we have it. This happens all the time uh, since that day to this day as well. Preacher gets up and preaches the good news, the truth like this, they're rejected. <laughs> the enemy, the enemy, the pattern is so clear. Someone preaches the gospel, preaches good news, and the enemy fires up the resistance. He fires it up in your head and your heart and your mind right now hearing this, but he also fires it up in our world. You see, John had been a bad boy. Besides this particular little sermon he's been preaching here, like all this stuff about repentance and baptism and brood of vipers and all that, he'd also called out Herod. He'd also been preaching and telling the people, hey, here's what happened. Herod had an affair with his brother-in-law's wife. He publicly called him out about this. And so here we have Herod now saying, okay, look, on top of the fact that he called me out for that sin of adultery with my brother's wife, not his brother-in-law, his brother's wife, and all of this stuff that he's preaching. You see, Herod is seeing this. He's seeing all these people leaving the city, the big city, to go out to this wilderness, and, and that, like there's a lineup of people, like there's thousands going out to John the Baptist to receive this baptism and hear his preaching and his message. And, and at the same time, Herod realizes this, that John's sitting there going, hey, Herod, you coming? You need this too. Herod's conclusion, I'm putting him in prison. And hopefully that'll shut him up. It's sad. So in conclusion, I hope you have seen how John the Baptist embraced his status as second. He truly saw himself as second to Jesus Christ alone, and that was his purpose in life, to be second to the Savior of the world. It's interesting then to hear what Jesus later, a few months later, has to say about John, isn't it? I mean, he's saying, no, Jesus is first, I am second, and I'm good with that. But Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, he says this, truly I say to you, look at these words, this is Jesus talking about his cousin John, truly I say to you, among those born of women, we're all born of women, which means everybody, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What? Wow. So listen, as we go to communion today, I want to remind you what happened on the night before Jesus was betrayed. Now, you all know that on the night before he was betrayed, he broke bread and, and, and had some wine, and he told his disciples about his body and about his blood, and this is how you're to remember me. But you know, remember what else he did on that night? 
Jesus took off his tunic, he wrapped it around his waist, he got down on his hands and knees, and he washed his disciples' feet. Peter's like, what are you doing? (laughs) You don't wash my feet. I I I wash your feet. You're the Lord. You're first. I should be doing this for you. Jesus rebukes him like he'd done before with Peter. This time it wasn't get behind me, Satan. This time it was like, Peter, if I don't do this for you, if I don't wash you, you won't share in my life going forward. And then Jesus, John records these words of Jesus at the end of this story. Do you understand, speaking to the twelve, to his disciples, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do, he goes on to say, as I have done to you. So Jesus says, so guys, remember this, not just to remember my body broken and my blood shed for you, but remember this, what I'm doing for you, you also need to do. I'm modeling this for you. I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger, John the Baptist, greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Let me conclude with this thought. Friends, being second is not about seeing yourself as less or unworthy. In God's economy, going low is always the way up. Jesus has given us an example Follow him and he will lift you up. And let me leave this. Being second is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less often. Is Jesus first? Is Jesus first? That is it in a nutshell for our lives. He needs to be first in every area of your life. Some of you here today, being here today, you made him first. Not yourself, not me, not the worship team, not anybody else, I hope. You made him first today. Let's go tomorrow and do that the same. Pray with me, would you?